I think we should work harder on ourselves than we do our job. And we do the opposite of that in life. We work harder on our jobs than we do ourselves. And that's why the personal development, the knowing what frustrates you, what rewards you, what are outlets that take that make use of your other talents, when you spend time on those, then you are a better mother, father, administrator, emergency physician, medical director, whatever all the other things are that you want to be in life. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. In this episode, you'll hear my co-host, Dr. Andrea Austin, interviewing our guest, Dr. Tracy Sanson, about resilience and burnout. And they'll talk both at the theoretical level, but also importantly, about small structural changes that you can make to improve your performance and most importantly, improve your life in general. You'll hear Dr. Austin introduce Dr. Sanson in a moment when we get started, but before that, a reminder of two important ways to stay connected to the world of the emergency mind. First off, there's our newsletter. It's free and it's awesome. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash signup. Second is our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. It's available on Amazon, and you can also find out more at emergencymind.com slash book. Okay, All that said, let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. I'm really excited to have on the podcast today, Dr. Tracy Sanson. Dr. Sanson is a practicing emergency physician. She's a consultant and educator on leadership and development and medical education. Dr. Sanson's experience spans more than 20 years in emergency medicine education and emergency department management. She has held director positions in the military and civilian practice settings, She is an invited lecturer on leadership, professionalism, communication, patient safety, and personal development. Dr. Sanson is an ardent physician advocate and expert on physician wellness and burnout. On the Emergency Mind podcast, we really focus on how physicians and other high performers can improve their performance under high pressure. 2020 and now 2021 has been unlike any year that any of us have ever lived through. Burnout is a major issue. It was a major issue before the pandemic with 65% of emergency physicians saying that they are experiencing symptoms of burnout. So with Dr. Sanson today, I really want to focus on the topic of burnout, both the prevention, mitigation, and then also talk about recovery. Today's episode will be a little bit different than our usual episodes where we cover the gamut of someone's career. And certainly we will talk about Dr. Sanson's career, but we're going to keep it pretty focused on burnout, given what a big issue this is. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrea. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to it. So let's start with a definition of burnout. I think it's a term that is certainly in the lay press and you speak to both physicians, and then I believe you also do some work with hospital administrators. So when you're talking with different groups, how do you introduce the concept of burnout? There are definitions all over the place. When I talk to people specifically, one word that comes up over and over again is exhaustion. And then from that exhaustion, I think where we get the, and I I use the term that's been coined in the last year or two for us is the moral injury, is that feeling of exhaustion makes us feel like we are not giving our all, whether it's at work or at home or whatever our outside pursuits are, related to just this the worst I'll say is I'm just tired. So then when you look back at the definitions that are out there across the board, exhaustion is one of them followed fairly quickly by cynicism and then followed by that phrase of it just doesn't matter anymore. And when you find yourself anywhere along that continuum, I feel to myself and then one of the folks that I'm speaking to, uh, you're, you're there, you're in burnout we're in a tough situation and let's figure out how to try and reclaim parts of ourselves. So you've been practicing emergency medicine over 20 years. That's a huge accomplishment. Like close to 30 years, if not 30 years, but um, yes, I have. And have watched it um, change dramatically, including the recognition that we as physicians 
are an important part of um, the whole healthy team. Let's back up a little bit and talk about your origin story and how you chose emergency medicine and then connect that to how you have this interest in physician wellness and how you've been able to stay in it because there must be something special about what you're doing and your mindset that has allowed you to have this longevity in the field. Oh, thanks. So, you know, I started, um, I trained at the University of Illinois program for medical school. And um, I was actually interviewing for surgery as going to be my field. I had taught anatomy in grad school, just absolutely loved it. And uh, during that process, I did my emergency medicine rotation. And I thought, this is what I'm really looking for. And this was the days pre-ARIS and a great faculty member who was a mentor for me uh, said, I'll help you. Um, And she called around and helped arrange um, interviews for emergency medicine. And I matched then in emergency medicine at the University of Illinois program there in Chicago, Uh, had a great residency and then I had a military payback. So I was down in San Antonio at the joint military Uh, program, Air Force and Army, and I was the education director there for four years. Uh, Then moved to Tampa, Florida, um, followed because my twin lived there, and it was a new place um, to kind of decide what I was going to do for the next several years, and ended up staying there for 25 years. Married, had my children. While I was there in Florida, I was the education director for what was then a new program, the University of South Florida program, in emergency medicine and did that for a good portion of my career. I also was a medical director for various sizes of emergency departments. And then, you know, I think what helped me, or at least um, something I would recommend is that have kind of uh, an interest in various parts of things. I was in the military education director. While I was there, I became a flight surgeon and hyperbaric officer, was able to travel. Then when I was the education director for the University of South Florida program, reached out and was part of developing a emergency medicine outreach program in India, and as well as a medical student clerkship director. Then I started um, really speaking out on my own as a professional speaker and a mentor developer of people. And I think it's having those, they call them side gigs, but having those outreach areas that helped you re-nourish yourself. So that sounds like a pearl that we can take away from today is that part of preventing burnout is having these outlets, having some diversity in your career. Yeah. Earlier when you introduced the program, what came to mind is a saying that I I try to use quite often and that I tell other folks, I think we should work harder on ourselves than we do our job. And we do the opposite of that in life. We work harder on our jobs than we do ourselves. And that's why the personal development, the knowing what frustrates you, what rewards you, what are outlets that take, that make use of your other talents. When you spend time on those then you are a better mother, father, administrator, emergency physician, medical director, whatever all the other things are that you want to be in life. If you focus only on your job, then you're a great emergency physician, but the other parts of your life tend to wilt. Then if the contract is lost or where we are right now, they downsize or put off because of productivity, et cetera, then you're often left with that, what am I going to do now? So I'd really tell you, work harder on yourself than you do your job. And part of that working on yourself is to look for what are other areas of interest that I have? What are the talents that I have? And to make sure that you're nourishing those as well. Another tip I would give is, and every other industry does this in business, uh, in entertainment, uh, not as much in education, But every three to five years, you should be adding something to who you are and what you do. Now, it's not saying that you get halfway through emergency medicine, then you decide to go become a dermatologist. Although we are seeing things like that. We're seeing great emergency physicians decide to run weight loss clinics or medi spas or those types of things. 
that's what you're doing is adding on to who you are as a person and adding on to your skill set. And it brings back kind of a freshness. It brings an energy into to who you are and what you're doing. And it doesn't have to even be medical or business related. If you want to learn to do an Ironman or run marathons or paint or whatever another outlet is of you, every three to five years, try to add something to who you are. And that helps keep things fresh and it helps keep us, you know, burnout is like sitting on the edge of a fence. You're usually doing okay, but some things can push you right over and off that fence. And by having these other interests and other things that give you affirmation and um, a sense of meaning can be helpful when you're starting to teeter sitting on that fence. I really like that. And I'd like to try to make that accessible for our medical students and residents that are listening and are working those crazy 60 hours, 80 hours a week. And I think part of the challenge is the intensity of medical training ends up making people lose a lot of interesting aspects to their life. And, you know, I remember times, and I'm sure you remember, you know, being on the IC rotation and I would tell myself, I'm going to sleep when I can, I'm going to eat and just not worry about what I'm really eating. And I'm just going to survive. And you end up feeling pretty hollowed out. At least I did. And there wasn't really much left in your life. And then you get to the end of it and you're like, great, I finished residency. Now I'm finally this, you know, well-trained emergency physician And so I think a lot of us, our identity is really wrapped up into that. So how do you hold on to some humanity and some diverse experiences while you're going through training? I think you have to be intentional about it. Um, It is very easy. You're doing 12-hour shifts, and uh, that means 14 or 16 hours by the time you get up, get dressed, get there, sign out, get home. Usually all you are doing is eating and sleeping. And there are times though, when you have a downtime, um, whether or not it might be that day off or something was canceled or you're driving in the car. And what you'll find is that if you don't make a conscious decision to say, what am I going to do with the free time that I have? It will get frittered away. Um, When we're stressed, which is what all of that is, the lack of time, the lack of connection. When we're stressed, what happens is we turn to numbing mechanisms, something to dampen down that cortisol that's always being um, exuded in our body at that time. And what happens is you do things like drink. Uh, For me, it was hostess ho-hos, or, you know, I'd go back and forth on whether it was a sweet or a salty carbohydrate that I wanted. Um, When I was very early in my career, it was MTV. I knew every new video that had come out. And now it can be things like Netflix or whatever numbing thing. Um, Quite often, I will find that I'll get caught on Twitter or Facebook or following people on Instagram, and I have just wasted hours. It's okay to have a numbing, um, whatever mechanism that it you need, as long as you keep it under your choice. So give yourself, I'm going to spend 15 minutes, I'm going to spend a half an hour, an hour on Facebook or video games or, or Netflix, whatever it may be, because you need something to kind of help your body settle back down. But then in the time that you have, if it's something, if you want to be great in leadership or finance or, or athletics, whatever it is, you've got to spend what time you have intentionally doing that. Read that book, listen to that podcast, watch that video, get out and do that run. Uh, if you are journaling or if you're somebody who writes, put your time into getting those pages out and written. I think what we do when we um, are stressed is we don't intentionally use the time that we do have that's available. That's such a great tip. I I really like that. And I can totally relate to, you know, my post shift routine is to turn on some numbing television, usually Mm -hmm. Netflix. And for me, it's about 30 minutes. Sometimes it's 45 if it was a particularly 
distressing shift. But I like that idea of what you have control over. Use that to your advantage to fill your cup. Yeah. You know, I think also it helps to at some point. See, I think this is what's happened. We get on a, a train someplace in high school. We're going to do great in medical school. We're going to do great in residency. Then we're going to get out and be an attending. And you have to prove yourself as an attending. And you're studying for boards. And then all of a sudden you're trying to maybe maybe go for an advanced degree or start a family or move up in the corporation or even just figure out your finances. And all of a sudden, really, five, 10 years have gone by without sitting down and saying, what is important to me? Where do I want to be six months from now, a year from now, five years from now? And I play this um, it's not really a game, but this little exercise with folks, I'll say, I want you to real quickly tell me the top five things that are important in your life. And they'll write them down. And I'll say, now, now which, uh, and this was um, recommended to a friend by me, put a circle next to those five things where the, the size of the circle indicates um, how important that is to you. And so you might put a huge circle next to family and maybe another huge circle to something that's important to you, like reading or photography or running or sailing or whatever it may be. And then I want you to think about it and put a circle next to each one of those where the size of the circle indicates how much time you're putting into it. And, you know, there are times when your schedule is not your own. And I'm thinking specifically of being a resident or a medical student. And in that case, the circle next to the word work will be huge. But if you look back at what are the things that you said were important and family was one of them or fitness or an advanced degree or whatever it is, and you're not putting the time into it, then that's where all of a sudden people say, oh man, I was going to do that. Whereas if you've gone through this exercise, then when you've given yourself the 15 minutes, an hour of the numbing, um, whatever the mechanism is for you, then you say, oh man, I said it was family that was important to me. Have I called my mom? Have I sent a text? Did I follow up on somebody's birthday? Have I gotten together with my tribe? I, I said I was going to uh, do work on my photography. Have I read that book, listened to that podcast, even gone outside with my camera? Um, unless you're regularly re-looking at those things, I guarantee you years, if not decades, will go by. This has come up multiple times recently for me, and it's really about sitting down and considering what your values are. And I think for a lot of us, the value was, I want to be a good doctor. And we gave up a lot of the other parts of our lives. And now we get to go back and really, like you said, evaluate what your values are and then try to the best of your ability to match your time so it's reflecting those values. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I think the biggest thing that we let go is our, our relationships. You know, you left your friends in high school and you moved on to college and then you left them and you moved on to medical school and then you left your residency friends and you ended up wherever you're working right now. And especially for those of us who were in and out of military service, you left that whole nother group. Pick people that are important to you and make that intentional that you are going to stay connected. Even if you have to put it on your schedule to say, call these folks or get together with these people. I have uh, two groups that we have a, uh, over the years, we have about a two to three week window in a certain part of the month where we all know we're getting together. And we've gone various places uh, all over the United States and the world to connect. Because when you find that your resilience is starting to be tested and you're getting down and into that abyss that can be burnout, the biggest thing that helps people out are to be able to reach out to those relationships. And if they have not been maintained, then uh, you are often even more alone when you're at the darkest part in your life. So I will tell you that I think relationships are key to being one of the most resilient uh, people that you can be. I think that's such a great point. 
because the stress that we're under, in order to have some of these conversations, you have to already have some history with somebody. At least that's what I find. I have to trust that person enough to show the vulnerability that, you know, I had a bad shift, I'm feeling burned out. And if I don't have something in that relationship bank already, it's really hard to have an honest conversation. I really think of it as, have you been there for that other person or persons in their highest high and their lowest low? Were you there for their weddings, their children's birth, their graduations, their making associate professor or professor? And were you there in their low times, the death of their parent, or when they didn't get the um, promotion? When you've had those connections and you took the time out of your schedule to call or be there, then they'll be there for you. If you have not made those connections, then you're right. When you're, see, I think of, I think of um, our resilience as being like, most of us were walking around and somebody can say, hey, how you doing? Having a great day. That was a good shift. And we hear those things. When our resilience is tested, as it is right now, the stress of the economy, the stress of where emergency medicine's going, the fear for our families, our own personal health. I often think of us being in like a, a rut. You know, people can still see you, you can still hear them when they reach out to you. As things progress and get worse, I think of it as being like six feet under that, you know, you can probably hear people sending you affirmations and you know that there are people out there, but there can be times when depending on the confluence of all the stressors in your life, you're in an abyss. You're in that deep, dark place where there's huge dark walls around you and you can't hear the people who are just kind of by on the bypass saying, hey, how you doing? Or might send a text or something. You need those close friends that are going to come find you, crawl down in that abyss and sit with you while you figure out how to get out. And then you and that friend get out together. And that's why I think over and over again, if I had to tell anybody what's the biggest place I would put my energy, it is important to have money. It gives you freedom. It is important to work at a place that acknowledges and affirms you and where you feel like you're doing great medicine. And I think it's important to have outside experiences or things that are important to you. But the foundation to having resilience and being able to weather what's out there are the relationships that you have with people around you. I think that's so huge. And, you know, I want to just personally say to anybody out there that started a new job, especially in healthcare during the pandemic, wow, you know, that was a rough time because the normal rhythm of connecting with people, even, you know, even in a hospital setting, there is connections that it, that used to occur, the potluck, the hug after a tough case. And for the most part, that has not happened in over a year. You know, the consultant that used to come by and make eye to eye contact and give you feedback, positive or negative about how things were going, or, you know, I don't do it as much now, um, but a good portion of my medical career, you went out with people afterwards for a quick bite to eat or a drink, or we played softball or those kind of connections that built a community. Because uh, most of us spend about 70% of our waking lives at work. You know, when you figure out with residency and the times and things that we put in, and to not have a community for that significant portion of time has stressed us on, um, on our ability to, uh, to find meaning, to stay connected. So I want to pivot for a minute and focus on something that you said earlier about depersonalization. And this is a concept that Dan and I have talked about before. When we're on shift and we have something stressful happen, so let's say death of a patient, and you have to go into another room and keep going because that's what we do in emergency medicine. There's other industries that have the same challenges of having to switch gears very quickly. 
I think there's a necessary level of compartmentalization that has to occur. I mean, for the most part, you can't really stop and have like a full breakdown or, you know, personal time, especially, you know, on a busy shift. Our theory is that that compartmentalization, while it's healthy in a way to get you through the shift and take care of your patients, if you don't deal with it, it builds up. And I've, how have you dealt with that? What are your suggestions for after a shift like that when you've had to do some really intense compartmentalization? So I think there are two things there that, that came to mind when you were talking about that. A great friend of mine used to tell me about this. Um, he said, I know we're running from room to room. And, and you're right. You're going from a what seems like insignificant complaint to a significant psychosocial problem that's going on with a family or someone you've connected with. You can't take those back and forth between each room. But as you're about to enter the room, whatever it is, develop some type of a reminder. It's straightening your stethoscope or or straightening your coat or uh, whatever it is. So that as you're about to go into that room, you settle yourself for a moment. You remind yourself for a moment that you're about to connect with another human being. And that human being came to you for help. And that gives your mind that ability to try and change and to focus yourself and to uh, give them the best person that you are. It does still mean that you have taken whatever just occurred in another room and stuffed it. And anytime you stuff those emotions, they have to come out somewhere. So I think it's important. Some people journal. Some people on the way home try and reflect on what occurred and work through things. There's a great book out right now that I'm reading, uh, Why We Sleep, and it's by Walker. He talks about the importance of sleeping and working through the things that have occurred during your day. In fact, I would really say I've found with resilience, this is going off just a bit, the importance of sleeping, the importance of getting those seven and a half to eight hours. We're not meant to live on four hours, six hours repeatedly of sleep, but finding those places to work through the processes of what you had during the day. So I think another way to think about this is our brains have a negativity bias. The brain's job is to keep the rest of the body alive. So it focuses on looking for the negative to prevent you from being eaten by a lion, to prevent you from stepping out and making a fool of yourself, whatever it may be. Well, what happens if you have a negativity bias is then that's all you see for the rest of the day. And this is something that I've started doing over the last probably five years. And I think it's made a big difference. The positive that goes on during the day only whispers at you. The negative that goes on during the day shouts at you. So when you're driving home at the end of the shift, what do you think you're remembering? What do you think you're hearing? The one person who said that negative thing about you, you don't hear the other times the nurse or a patient or a family said something really kind of nice. Like, thank you. I, you know, nobody's explained that to me like that before. Or even the big one that we key on in on is, do you have an office? Like they would want to come see us, right? We miss all those positive things because our brain is holding on to the negative. So that's why you'll see in a lot of resilience work out there is the recommendation of having a gratitude journal because it forces you to write down the things that were positive throughout the day. So I've taken this a step further for myself here. I forget to fill out a gratitude journal. I just forget. And I, what would happen is I'd end up in bed and I'd think, oh man, I was going to do that. Now, the reason they tell you to fill out your gratitude journal or to think about before you go to bed, because then your brain thinks throughout the night of the positive things. So I decided to take this into my workplace here. Whenever I see a repeating number at work, I look up at the clock and it's 222, or I'm about to put in order and I see that it's at 1111 or something. I try in that moment to think of three things that have gone well during the shift. Now, 
you can imagine it may be that I'm about to intubate somebody and I look up at the trauma clock to make sure we're on time and things. And I see a repeating number, it's 3.33. I can't in the middle while I'm giving automate orders and checking that the balloon is inflated, try and think of three things that went well. So that forces me throughout the day to look for positive episodes, positive interactions, positive connections that I have had. So that when I see that repeating number, that's what flashes into my mind are three things that went well. Now, some shifts, it can be harder than others to find the positive interactions that you have. And I've said this before, but I, I mean it deeply. Sometimes the only thing you may be able to find positive that moment is to look at yourself and think, I'm only covered in my own bodily secretions at the moment, right? (laughs) Something like that where you're digging deep looking for positivity, but I guarantee you that it's out there. And so that's what I have found is to stop for a moment before going into the next room and focusing myself and reminding myself I'm about to interact with a, a new human being. Secondly is as I'm going throughout the ride home or while I'm sitting there with whatever my numbing mechanism is, or before I'm about to go to bed, is to work through things that had occurred um, so that I'm not just stuffing them and, and they come out at some point. Um, whatever, whatever the interaction might have been or how I felt about a death or how I felt about you know intubating, intubating somebody that I didn't think should be intubated, all these kind of little moral crises that we have throughout the day. And then the other thing is to look for the positivity throughout the day and remind myself of that intermittently. I love that. I'm totally stealing that. I'm going to develop something where I'm looking at the clock because I've tried different things with setting alarms, which honestly then just annoys me because we already have like enough going on. But I like the idea of we have, you know, we spend a lot of time at the computer. So there's a really good chance you're going to see some of those recurrent numbers, like you're saying. So that's, that's great. So I want to spend some time talking about this book called Burnout by the Nagoski Sisters. For those of you who haven't read it, the thesis of the book is that a lot of our burnout is tied to having a stress response that we don't, in their words, complete the cycle. For our listeners, the scenario that I think of is if I have a difficult interaction with a consultant at this phase of my career, I can almost always stealthily handle that situation, maintain composure, use a lot of conflict resolution techniques. But there are times when that person is so rude and condescending and dismissive that even though my voice stayed the exact same volume the entire time when I get off of that phone call, I am shaking. I can feel that I have chest pain, which the older I get, I'm a little bit concerned about. That was for me the moment where it really resonated with me. What they were saying is that you can handle a stressful event, but you haven't handled the stress that came out of that and is affecting your body. What did you think of that thesis? And is that something that resonates with you or do you think is applicable to high performers? It resonated a lot with me. I think I've been using different language. Uh, they talk about completing the cycle of actually acknowledging what your body physiologically is going through. You know, if we're in a car crash uh, or even almost a crash, somebody stops in front of you and you stop quickly, but you don't actually hit them. A few seconds later, your foot starts to shake, your hands start to shake, you maybe get a little sweaty. You've had that significant cortisol epinephrine release, but you can say to yourself, uh, I'm okay. Or somebody else says to you, wow, that was close. I'm okay. You're okay. And we deal with the event and then we move on. When these things occur to us at work, the nomenclature I had used often was that we stuffed it. It occurred and we had to move on to something else. The problem is, is that cortisol and norepinephrine is still circulating. Your sense of being unsafe is still circulating. We have the freeze, flee, or fight response. That's what's occurring there. Only we're not allowed to do that in medicine, right? You can't freeze because there's going to be a nurse who's saying, I said, I need somebody in here. You can't flee. And so what we typically do then is we fight. 
And that is why you'll find yourself having an interaction that all of a sudden it deteriorates into something else. And you get off the phone thinking, why did I say that? Or why do I feel this? That is your body's response. Well, by finishing or completing the cycle, acknowledging what it did to you, acknowledging that you're safe, and then giving yourself maybe a moment or two of grace to kind of reconnect with yourself and move on to wherever you go. Even that kind of, hey, you didn't call them a <laughs> You didn't call them the word that you wanted to call them. You you remained professional is to acknowledge that that was a situation. You made it through and then you're going on to the other side. Um, I don't I think we just keep going full blast, move on to the next patient, pick up the next phone call without recognizing the true physiologic alarm response we just went through. I think that's so profound and for a lot of us, that was what we were taught to do in residency. It was always keep going, move faster. It was a badge of honor to not take a meal break. It was a badge of honor not to take a bathroom break. And I think it creates a lot of these tracks in your brain that are hard to, once they've been laid down by years of this pattern of, okay, something bad happened. If I'm strong, I'll keep going. Where now it's like, well, if I'm strong, I'll take a pause, have a few cleansing breaths and be able to go back into whatever I need to in a better state. But that's, I mean, that's hard to reverse. I mean, it's hard to develop that new habit after so many years and so much around you telling you that you were only as good as how fast and how you could keep moving. You know, a a place we're going in this work on resilience and of trying to acknowledge that we as physicians are important and that our health is important to then be able to pass on to the staff we're working, the community that we're in, the patients that we're taking care of is the phrase of self-care. And when that first came out, a lot of us are like, self-care, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm meant to be a competent physician. Who, nobody ever put any emphasis on, on my self-care before, uh, but it's true. And, you know, things like learning at cleansing breasts, things like learning to focus for a moment on yourself and acknowledge whatever that sensation was that you just had. And I think that's what I meant earlier when I said before you walk into that next room is to have some kind of ritual that helps you center yourself so that you don't walk in having just gotten off the phone with that consultant, your cortisol is kind of still speeding, your heart's still a little tachycardic, and then you step into the next room and you think, why didn't that interaction go well? Why didn't I connect there? It's because you hadn't finished the cycle and we're dragging it on into our next interaction or relationship. Take whatever it is for you to give yourself those moments. I used to say my getaway for the longest time was to walk out onto the EMS ramp. And then you find people will follow you there. So then it was to actually go to the restroom and just for a moment kind of collect myself. uh, And then... (laughs) We started with the, you have to read EKGs within five minutes or so, right? You know, they have to be signed off. They started sliding the EKGs under the door while you're in there. And I thought, oh, my one last place of, uh, of solace has been um, taken as well. So that means that we have to consciously figure out where it is in a busy 8, 12, sometimes 24-hour shift. How do I reconnect with myself. And it may be the cleansing moments. It may be the ritual of clearing yourself before you go into another room. It may be the little tricks, like I talked about, of seeing a recurring number and trying to think of the positive things that have occurred to uh, really focus it back on yourself. I will admit that, you know, as I, in my years of academics, I always said to the residents, take 15 minutes and go eat. You will live longer You will have a healthier career. You will enjoy emergency medicine most. And then I wouldn't take my own break, right? That's what we do. We we know it's the thing to do and then we don't do it ourselves. I think it's time where we are right now is to, you know, 
whatever, three minutes, one minute, cleansing breath, 15 minutes of eating uh, to make sure that you're doing self-care throughout the whole day. Going back to what you were talking about previously about relationships, do you have any other thoughts on how, why that's important and how we can be cultivating those throughout our careers? Thanks for asking that. Um, I, when I talked about earlier, I talked about your tribe, your group, whoever it is that would come and sit with you when you're in that abyss or who knows how you're doing. Sometimes we're distanced from our close friends, or you may be even working in a place that doesn't have the community to help nourish your soul while you're there. These do not have to be living human beings in the relationship that I'm talking about as well. I recommend having a group that you look up to, that you emulate. Uh, It can be somebody that's at your work. It might be a medical director. It may be a chair. It may be somebody that you work with. You really like the things that they do. So you watch them and you talk to them and maybe bounce ideas off of them. It could be somebody that you follow their podcast or read their books. They don't even have to be alive. It's somebody that you look up to and you're trying to take strength from them or things that they've done. Then the other flip side of that is not only who are you looking up to, but who are you bringing up behind you? Who are you mentoring? Who are you developing? Who are you helping up and out of their rut or wherever they may be? When I think you've got these three sets of groups, somebody you look up to, that really close, intimate tribe that knows you and that you've put the energy into their highs and their lows so that they're for you. And then the other group are the people that you're bringing up behind you. Uh, When you've got this kind of spectrum of relationships, then they can be there to support you wherever you might be in your process of dealing with the world or dealing with work or your own personal environment. I love that so much. And that's really been something that's added so much meaning to my life is is having those people. And I think it's almost, you know, I think about having that aspirational figure is, you know, I'm not a huge Star Wars person, but it's, it's your Yoda. And yeah, sometimes you attach, you build that person up more than what they actually are. But in the moment, sometimes that's really helpful. You know, I, when I'm having a tough time on shift and, and, intense interaction with somebody, I channel my mentor, Carrie King, what would Carrie do right now? And, you know, I know Carrie is still a human and probably has gotten irritated at times, but he was always so good at maintaining that sense of calm. And the other thing that I think is really cool, and I'm sure you've gotten to the stage of your career, some of those mentors that you had Now there's moments where you're able to help them. And that was like the best moment ever that the person that spent so much time helping me, the first time I got an email back from them and I was able to to return in some small way, help them out. That was just like, wow, I finally made it. It's those connections. And I think when the world is tough around you and you're in that freeze, flee or fight mode, Um, You know, when you're in that freeze, you get that tunnel vision. We tend to try and do it all alone. If you've got this circle of friends around you or circle of influence around you, then you've got somewhere to go. And it doesn't even have to be somebody that you know. I remember recently divorced, unwanted, unexpected, at my lowest low. I grabbed on to Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist monk, and Brene Brown. And I would listen to their podcasts or read their books or whatever it was to try and connect with them. Think of phrases that they've said. And that got me through. And I don't even know them, right? But they were somebody that I looked up to and I could connect with. And they became part of my moving on and into the next. And you find yourself doing that for others as well. Zig Ziglar is a, or was a motivational speaker, and uh, he had a phrase that I often think about. It's that you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. And it kind of encapsulates that, that if you're there 
for people in their times of needs or their times of joy, there's more likely that they will be there for you when you need them as well. But that is an intentional reaching out for the books, the podcasts, and intentional keeping those relationships alive and thriving. That is so great. I just want to pick up the phone right now and call one of my best friends. Good. (laughs) While there's been a lot of negative aspects of the pandemic, one of the positive aspects is there's been in the House of Medicine a real look at how bias affects performance and how it relates to burnout. What advice would you give to listeners that feel isolated in their working environment, that feel like they're the only person or they're being discriminated against and they're having a hard time at work? And maybe they know that's contributing to their burnout or maybe they don't at this point. They're just in this difficult situation. They may not know that it's contributing to the burnout, but we know it is. Uh, The literature has shown uh, in the last five to 10 years, this is not something we knew uh, or at least wrote about and could read about in the past. Microaggressions, any aggressions, have an impact on your own sense of self, your being able to maintain your sense of meaning while you're at work, whether or not you are productive or feel productive, whether or not you're an engaged employee, an engaged professional. Um, So I think what's important is if you're in a situation like this where you're alone, whatever that reason for being alone is, if you're the only female, if you're the only one who's um, dealing with infertility or who's uh, dealing with young children or you're the only person of color, whatever it is that's leading to your isolation, I think there are two things that you can do. One is look on the outside for somebody that you can connect with um, by either a quick text or in a chat or a call or connecting for uh, a beer or drink of coffee to be able to talk to them about your experience and the impact it's having on you. They can act as a sounding board to you to help you affirm how you're feeling. Um, When you're alone, you can have people that say, well, nobody ever talked to me like that, or I've never had somebody ask me to do that, as if the fact that it didn't happen to them negates it having happened to you, right? So you need somebody who's going to help you work through the process. Because the second thing that we need to do is to start calling these things out. 10 years ago, we didn't use the term microaggression. I think in most places right now, if you said to somebody, do you recognize the bias in the room right now? Uh, Do you recognize the microaggression here? Uh, That um, they would at least understand that this is a new language. You're sitting in a room and it's staff meeting and you've made a um, remark about something and it's ignored or somebody interrupts you or someone else then five minutes later says the same exact thing and everybody jumps in. You can, at that moment, say, hey, I want to just bring to everyone's attention here uh, that I was just interrupted or that that was ignored. Or what really works great is if there's another person that's with you in that room, for them to say, hey, did everybody just noted that um, Andrea was interrupted? that that was Andrea's idea a couple minutes ago. They're championing you and they're affirming what you've had to say. Maybe you go to that person afterwards or you go to your chair or your medical director and name what's going on. Uh, I noticed that in the email that just came out, everybody else was Dr. Austin, Dr. O'Connor, Dr. and I was described as Tracy. Do you realize the impact of that? Um, I, I think we need to start calling those things out. It's the only way we'll change behavior. And it's important for us to be able to name it for ourselves. I think that's so great. And for people listening that want to learn more about that topic and how you can be an ally, there's two books I would recommend. Um, one is Athena Rising. 
And the other one is Good Guys, which I actually have not read, but I listened to the authors give a lecture at a recent conference on Good Guys. And it's a book about allyship. And it provides a lot of the phraseology that you just heard Tracy give. And you can craft it to what's going to sound authentic to you. What what words can you use during a staff meeting or on shift that resonate with you and that you can start working in to your language to be a better ally for everyone? You know, women, very common microaggression is, oh, yeah, we've had to cover all of her shifts. You know, I've had to pick up a bunch of night shifts because she's on maternity leave. And frequently the person that maybe had to go out on sick leave for an orthopedic issue or something like that, it's not described in the same way. So I think that's a that's an easy way for people to um, start calling out some of that, that stuff. And you may be listening going, why are we talking about that right now? Those things contribute to burnout. And it makes people feel like they don't belong. And this is really coming back full circle that when we feel like we don't belong, then we can't connect and have the relationships at work where we spend a lot of our time that keep us wanting to come back. Another thing, I told you a couple tips along the way. Another thing that I started doing, uh, I would be driving home at the end of a shift and I'd think, you know what? I don't think anybody cared that I was there. I mean, it could have been any emergency physician. In fact, I'm I'm not sure that several of the people that I worked with even knew my name. Have you ever had that? Yes. You know, we're working with people, we're we're impacting morbidity and mortality, and you don't even know the other person's name. That's how depersonalized we've come at work sometimes. So I challenged myself that I would pick one person out of every walk of life during a shift janitorial staff, transporter, security, a nurse, a colleague. Um, and I would make sure by the end of the shift that they were for better for having crossed my path. And it doesn't have to be significant. It could be something like using their name, you know, finding out who the transporter's name is and saying, hey, thanks, Dan. I appreciate you picking them up to telling the EKG tech, wow, great job on this tracing to acknowledging that one of the nurses' mom is going through breast cancer treatment right now and asking her how things are going, of you know the person that is coming back from maternity leave, of saying, how is your babe doing? How are you doing? It's tough to be away, isn't it? To make everybody by the end of a shift feel like it mattered that they were there. And I will have to tell you this, selfishly, the reason I do that is Again, it makes me remember people's names to connect and build a community. But when you start laying that foundation, it then comes back to you. And somebody says, oh, that was a great shift. I enjoyed working with you. Or, you know, you come in on the shift and they're like, whoa, Sanson's here. And, and they're saying it in a positive, you know, not like they're like, oh, no, Sanson's here. So I think it's that idea of those helping everybody around you feel less lonely and then you yourself feel less lonely as well. In keeping with that, um, the things that are causing you to feel lonely, the microaggressions maybe, or the fact that you're the only whatever it is, only person of color, only female, whatever, start working on making those changes. Call out the things that are done. You can do them quietly and to the side if you need to initially as you build authority in the place that you are. Um, get on the staff um, when or get into the committee meeting where they're deciding who they're going to hire or who they're going to promote. Change the community that's around you. Change the environment, I guess is the better word. And if you find, I think that's what's key with all this on the self-care and knowing yourself, if you're at a place and you feel really lonely and you've tried to make the changes and you've tried to do the things to look for the positivity, to find the meaning in your own work, to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and you're still being beat down, it may be time to move and to find an environment that is supportive around you. And I think that's what comes from learning from the idea of personal development. Learn what affirms you, learn what aggravates you, learn what your tolerance is for this and what your tolerance is, and then listen to that thing. Take care of yourself, work harder on yourself than you do your job. 
Oh, I love it. That's definitely going to be the the quote for this episode is work harder on yourself than your job. It just reminds me, I just, I really start, started to get into Susan David's work. Uh, she's a, a book called Emotional Agility and she was on Brene Brown's podcast. And she has a quote about how we sometimes put too much emphasis on grit And I've always said to people that want to do emergency medicine, grit is the number one characteristic that I think somebody has to have to be able to succeed in this this field. But like everything can be taken to an extreme. And I think we've seen that, that when you only just focus on the hunkering down and just getting through instead of reflecting on your values, taking time to rest all the things you've been talking about, it, it really, like, that's no way to live. That's no way to, to succeed in emergency medicine or really anything else. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, I haven't finished it, but Duckworth's book on grit, did, did you read it? I have not. Anytime you look at grit, and, and I understand it, we actually, uh, I remember one of the fixed talks, I think it was one of the first fixed talks, somebody put up a big thing that talked about grit. Grit comes from making it through either life-threatening or life-altering or those significant episodes out there. What if we could get there without having to have gone through that, right? What if we could get there by the personal development of knowing what your talents are and make sure you're cultivating that, knowing what a great environment is and make sure you're actually searching and staying in that kind of an environment, knowing what your needs are, whether it's sleep or affirmation or running marathons, and we're working on those, that we were becoming strong people based on cultivating what we need, as opposed to trying to make it through these intense events without falling apart. Um, it's, It's a different way of looking at things. And I think that's where we'll get with the idea of self-care. Self-care meanings f- means finding what it is to make you the best and strongest person, not just merely surviving. Um, and then I think we'll do better. And that's going to be a whole change in emergency medicine because you're right. We, But we tend to keep pushing people and finding the ones that then can make it and weeding out the ones who maybe seem softer or quieter or more emotional. Um, We tend to do that in emergency medicine as well. So it's been fantastic having you on the show. And as we wrap up, we always like to end with a challenge for our listeners. In the realm of burnout, what would you ask our listeners to do? Wow, that's, (laughs) so I'm going to take license here. You asked me for one. I I can think of two that come to mind right away. Uh, The one is whatever it takes for you, start focusing on the amazing positivity that is around you. The things that occur at work that were great, even the small little things of positivity, because if you focus on those, they'll start to push the brain's negativity to the back. And those are going to be what stick with you as you drive home, as you walk in the door and say hi to your kids or your dog, as you're about to go to sleep and set up whatever your dreams are for the night. So I would tell you, focus on a way to look for the positivity throughout your life, especially at work. The second one is, and reemphasize the importance of relationships. Sit down right now and think of two or three people that you look up to and how are you going to reach out to them or are you going to start scheduling listening to their podcast or are you going to go buy their newest book? Work on that tribe that you have. Um, Set up a Zoom call. Start a group chat. Um, Say right now, okay, June, whatever the third weekend in is June, we're all going to meet someplace. And then the last one is, and this is where we sometimes forget, start looking around for the people that are looking up to you. Especially in the emergency department, there's a new physician, there's a young nurse, there's a EMT that comes to you for questions or that maybe hangs on things that you have to say. 
start figuring out ways to bring them up behind you. When you make that whole circle of people around you, then it really does change your perspective on on where you fit in the world and markedly decreases that loneliness that we have. Awesome. There has been so many great pearls and life lessons in this podcast. And I'm going to ask, can we do this again? Yes, I'd love to. Thanks. Great. On the next episode, when I have Dr. Sanson back on, we're going to focus on what I like to call or what's been called burnout 2.0. So on this episode, we talked a lot about personal resiliency, which is huge. That is definitely part of the equation for burnout, but I don't want to minimize how important it is for groups and hospital systems to do a better job of creating environments that allow us to thrive. So if you're listening, going, I can't do any more yoga. Well, one, we didn't mention any yoga. Two, we are going to have an episode all about the things that need to change in order for us to really thrive in medicine in these high-performing fields. Thanks. I look forward to that. I think that's equally as important as our own personal work. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash signup. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.